Well, good morning, everybody. All right, I, I, we may have done this before this morning, but I wanted us to do it all together. All right, you know what it is. I'll start us off. He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right, it's good to see so many of you from way up here in Wisconsin. You know, something I've noticed from working from home, it's still a little new to me, but I noticed that I get to overhear some conversations that uh, Kim has with our kids and our, our granddaughters. And, and earlier this week, uh, Kim was speaking to our granddaughters, Lily and Evie, uh, and they started telling Kim about Easter. Uh, one of them said something like, uh, you remember Nana? Uh, Easter is all about Jesus being crucified and resurrected. And, and, and Christmas, that's all about Jesus being born. I mean, all of our holidays are about Jesus. And uh, after I smiled and had some tears in my eye, I realized I had something else to remember. Uh, and that's our granddaughter's uh, growing awareness of Jesus, even in the midst of, of holidays. So it was great. It's great to be home. Thank you guys for allowing me to be here. Uh, here's something else I noticed. Um, so I don't know about you guys, but how is your thinking these days? Are you a little, maybe a little scattered or something? Uh, Kim and I started taking this, this supplement a while back, and I don't know if the FDA, FDA has approved that it works or not, but it's called, uh, hey, Kim, what's it called? Ginkgo biloba. Ginkgo. Ginkgo. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I forgot. Well, now, it's supposed to help with, wait a minute, what's it supposed to do? Remember Jeffrey? Oh, that's right. It's supposed to help with memory. I, I forgot. Oh, well. Wait a minute, did I take it this morning? I don't know. Did you take it this morning? I, I don't know. I guess I forgot. Well, like I said, I, the FDA hasn't proved that it works or not. But, you know, if I take a memory-enhancing supplement for several months, and like ginkgo, and, and I can't remember from day to day if I took it or not, well, maybe that's telling me that uh, I'm taking that pill in vain because it hasn't changed anything about my memory. Well, this morning, when it comes to remembering a foundational doctrine like the resurrection, Paul's solution is not ginkgo. It's the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, maybe as a family, you're, you're gathered around a family Bible, or maybe you've got your Bible app going. We're in 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, we're looking at just the first 11 verses. And as a quick reminder, 1 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's letter to a very troubled church. Uh, the broader context with regards to Jesus' death and resurrection is in chapter 15, uh, and that's captured uh, by this thought by scholar Craig Blomberg. He says this about the, the context there. He says, in Paul's day, almost everyone held to a supernatural worldview that encouraged belief, at least in life after death. Most Greeks and Romans, however, did not see that this required bodily resurrection. And in our current cultures today, this supernatural worldview, it's not shared you know, widely either. So we have to defend both the possibility and the need for bodily resurrection. So how does that, uh, Paul deal with that? Well, he reminds of the most fundamental purpose of the resurrection. Uh, that, that's, that's what's important. And the Corinthians have lost sight of that. So here's an outline for us, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 through 11. The title of it is, Don't Forget 
And we're going to look at the call to remember the gospel. And then there's proof of Jesus's resurrection from the scripture. And then proof of Jesus's resurrection from his followers. Some of those who were closest to him, as well as the apostle Paul. So in chapter 15, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the gospel, the good news that saves them, the fundamental importance that Jesus's resurrection has to their salvation. So let's look at the first two verses as he introduces Jesus's resurrection. Verse one, uh, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul saying the gospel, I taught you that, I true that. Jesus rose from the dead, true do, brothers and sisters. True do, that's kind of koine urban slang for it's true. Paul saying, remember, I preached it, you believed it, and you stand in it. You took your stand on it, and you're standing still there, loving and obeying Jesus in the truth. I preached that to you. You entered the realm of faith. You were justified through saving faith, and you are still there. You entered that realm of faith. You are being saved. That means the sanctifying work of saving faith, the ongoing being made more like Christ that kind of transformation. That's still continuing. The Apostle Paul is saying that. But what about that word, unless? Unless. That's a, that's a caveat in verse 2. Unless you believed in vain. That's there to protect, uh, protect against just knowing the truth. Hey, if Paul were to take these two verses and kind of put them together and create a question out of it uh, to discern the difference between life, meaning standing in the gospel and death, believing in vain. It would be something like this. Paul saying, are you standing in the gospel or do you just understand the gospel? Standing in the gospel of Jesus as savior means justified to eternal life. Believing in vain in the gospel of Jesus as savior means remaining condemned to eternal death. Verse one, standing in the gospel, justification. Now that's not earned by or achieved by, but it's evidenced by a holy life change. Verse two, being saved by the gospel reveals you have been justified by Jesus and you're continuing to be sanctified. So there's evidence that you're becoming more like Jesus. It's visible in everything you think and say and do. But there again, right at the end of verse 2, Paul gives us this caution, unless you believed in vain. Uh, so there are people who believe with no effect. That's what in vain means. Uh, to believe with no impact, to believe with no change. If you believe the gospel uselessly, that's another way to say it, then you have a very superficial faith that really only qualifies you to be a Pharisee because the Pharisees believed too. They understood it, but they never stood in it. They never committed to live in it. In fact, John 8:31, it's a good reminder. Uh, there we read, 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, you see that word believed, it's the same word as in verse 2 in 1 Corinthians 15. To the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You know who those Jews were? They're the same ones that Jesus says this to six verses later. In verse uh, 37, Jesus says, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. That word believe, whether believed in vain or or just believe superficially, that same words, 1 Corinthians 15, John 8. So you can believe in a way that you stand in the truth or in a way that you stand no place near the truth. Paul's caution, 1 Corinthians 15, 2, is against uh, a kind of easy believism. Believing in vain is just understanding Jesus in the gospel, but there being no changed life. Believing the gospel in vain, that's Romans 8, 11 through 13. Believing in the resurrection with just understanding, but still living according to the flesh. That is eternal death. But standing in the gospel is believing and living it according to the spirit. That's eternal life. Jesus changes you. Amen? The resurrected Savior changes your life. Amen? Yeah, I mean, there's no way around it. By continuing in life-changing faith, in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, believers show the reality of their transforming faith, and they persevere to the end. In verses 1 and 2, Paul is making clear both a claim and a caution in order to remind and prepare hearts for the powerful historical facts of Jesus' resurrection that we're going to see here in verses 3 through 11. Now, just looking at the, the next two verses, verses 3 and 4, that, that, that where Paul's going to rehearse the early Christian doctrines about Christ's death and resurrection, and much of it based right on Scripture. And then verses 5 through 11, we're going to see that these doctrines are proved true through the evidence of changed lives. But let's first look at verses three and four, okay? Verse three, for I delivered to you as a first importance, like don't, if you're gonna forget something, don't forget this, okay? A first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so these doctrines Paul is about to present are doctrines of the first importance. Again, don't forget these. Again, there are first doctrine, Christ died. He died for our sins. And we'll see that in scripture. Christ was buried and then Christ was raised on the third day. We'll see that in the scriptures. And then ultimately Christ appeared to the apostles and to other people. Now, these four doctrines are as important today in the 21st century as they were in the first century. So let's look at these quickly. First, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures at this point means the Old Testament. Now, what passages might Paul have in mind as predictions of the suffering and death of Jesus in our behalf? Well, the New Testament gives us a clue because there are some Old Testament passages that are, are cited there. And here's 
just a few. And if you want the full list later, I'm sure we can get it to you. But this includes passages from Psalms, uh, Isaiah, Zechariah, and Daniel. And so let's just quickly look at Isaiah 53 because it shows Jesus' suffering being for our sins, especially verses 4 and 5. It reads there, uh, Surely he, meaning the Messiah, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. So Jesus died for our sins as a sacrifice. He was our substitutionary atonement. I mean, he took our place. He took the wrath of God that was rightly ours for our sins. Next, we can see that uh, it says that Christ was buried. The next doctrine uh, in the gospel is that, that Jesus died and he was placed in a tomb. And this is based upon eyewitness testimony of the soldiers who crucified him and, and Pilate. The Roman soldiers had witnessed hundreds of deaths. I mean, they know what death looks like. And their actions are recorded in John 19, verses 33 and 34. says this, When they, meaning the soldiers, came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And while there is greater significance in the flow of blood and water, it's at least medical evidence to the soldiers that Jesus' blood had, had stopped circulating, that it coagulated, and that it had separated. Evidence of his death. Next, we see the fact of Jesus' burial with, with Pilate's approval. Now, that's in Matthew 27, starting in verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea. His name Joseph was named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut from the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Well, Jesus is dead and buried, a full, complete sacrifice. Next, we have that Christ was raised on the third day. Here again, according to Scripture. So there's Old Testament Scripture that backs this up too. A Psalm 16 is written about a thousand years before Jesus lived. It's one of the most obvious references because Jesus, I mean, because uh, Peter cites it in Acts 2, and he declares it as being fulfilled in Jesus. Psalm 16 uh, 9 and 10 reads this, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Verse 10 is the most important part. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And in his first post-ascension sermon, Peter quotes those verses and more right there in Acts 2. Uh, and then he says, and then he goes on to say, and I think it's verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today, this day, 
being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The key phrase there obviously being that, that Jesus was, body was no longer in the underworld. His body did not experience decay. Next, we see Jesus himself cite the Old Testament book of Jonah. And it was cited as a um, sign for the disbelieving Pharisees. In Matthew 12, verse 39, Jesus tells the Pharisees this. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man. And that phrase, the Son of Man, is a title Jesus used of himself so often. So will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. So this specifically gives a rendering of his entombment over three days and three nights. Those are the specific doctrines. And, and so now we come to our final section, verses 5 through 11. Here we see Paul's logical and historical argument for the resurrection from its, uh, from its effect back to the cause. Starting at verse 5, I'll read through verse 11. Uh, and that he appeared, meaning Jesus, and that he appeared to Cephas, who was just another name for Peter, uh, then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, we, so we preached, so you believe. Now I said that this section is Paul arguing for the resurrection from its effect all the way back to the cause, meaning nothing other than Jesus's resurrection could explain these lives being changed, including his own. Now at first glance, it looks like Paul's arguing for Jesus's resurrection by listing a bunch of names, and that may not make much sense to us today. It sounds like Anyone reading this letter should believe Jesus is resurrected just because he appeared to Cephas, uh, Peter, and the apostles, and James, and 500 other people, and, and, and Paul, too. And though we cannot talk to any of those people, the Corinthians receiving this letter, they could. Uh, most, but not all the followers mentioned here, were still alive. And so this is evidence of a verifiable recorded eyewitness account of people who saw Jesus risen from the dead. Some actually touched his scarred body. Some of them spent days with him. Paul's writing this letter to, the, to Corinth in about 50 to 55 AD. 
So that's only about 20 to 25 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's like Paul saying, you know, I'm writing this down, but you could go talk to the witnesses yourself. Many of them still alive. Uh, what's also not obvious here is that these uh, is what these witnesses believed right up until and even shortly after Jesus's resurrection. I mean, what's surprising is that everyone listed here, none of them believed that Jesus would be resurrected. They had to be convinced. Uh, Peter's mentioned here, and the testimony from his life is that just before Jesus was crucified, uh, Peter cursed and three times publicly denied even knowing Jesus. Then Peter went into hiding at the crucifixion, and he didn't show up to the empty tomb until Mary told him and John that the tomb was empty and what the angels had said. Nothing about Peter's words or deeds revealed that he was even the least inclined to believe in the resurrected Jesus. But for the last 20 years, <laughs> he can't stop talking about it. What happened? How can you explain the change? The only explanation is that Jesus appeared to him. Then there's James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he's mentioned here. Earlier, James had tried to stop Jesus from publicly teaching, and, and in one passage it says that, that James believed Jesus was crazy, like he was out of his mind. He was not a fan of Jesus. But after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to James, James's uh, half-brother, and James was like, wow, you know, all those years, you weren't just being a, a know-it-all big brother. You really are the risen Messiah. And after Jesus' appearance to James, James did a 180. Later, he went on to be the leader of the church of Jerusalem, and he was martyred for his faith in a resurrected Jesus in the mid-60s A.D. Paul also mentions Jesus appearing to the apostles uh, and 500 other followers who uh, all at one time saw Jesus alive. He does this because you could argue that individuals could be so upset at Jesus's death that they only imagined seeing Jesus. But a dozen people seeing him at one time, 500 people seeing him at one time, a mass hallucination, not likely. Paul also mentions himself, and he's maybe the most amazing reversal because he was never with Jesus. In fact, he vehemently opposed Jesus and his disciples. But Paul saw them as false teachers that were leading the Jews away from God. So he was having Jesus' disciples arrested and sometimes put to death. Not a fan of Jesus. In verse 9, Paul calls himself the least of the disciples because he sought to destroy the work of Jesus and his disciples. But on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, on the way to arrest even more Christ's followers, it all changed. In a blinding vision and a voice of Jesus from heaven, Paul was confronted not with not just the resurrected but ascended Jesus, and he was never the same. For the rest of his life, Paul went from killing disciples to making disciples. How does that happen? It takes a life-changing encounter 
with the risen Savior. In verse 10, Paul mentions the, the powerful grace of God was not in vain, and that contrasts that uh, belief of some that was in vain back in verse 2. Believing Jesus is who he said he is, that changes you. No way around it. Saving faith is way more than just understanding the gospel. It's belief that puts your whole way of trust for life and eternity in it. It's standing in this gospel, being changed by it. Whether back then or now, it's no different. And it takes all this evidence to be sure. It takes the death of Jesus. It takes the empty tomb. It takes all of the sightings and the reunitings. It takes the changed lives of all the witnesses to make this sure. The scholar N.T. Wright, he puts it this way. It's kind of like uh, if it had only been the eyewitnesses claiming to have seen a resurrected Jesus, but the tomb, uh, but the tomb still had his body in it, then everybody would know the disciples were just hallucinating. And if there was an empty tomb and there had been no sightings, then the people would have known, well, the body was stolen. I mean, Paul could never have invited belief in the resurrected Savior unless all the original witnesses of the resurrection uh, were, like throughout the rest of their lives, testifying to the reality of Jesus' resurrection, even at great cost to themselves. Some people today think that, well, of course, they'd falsely propagate a resurrection because this would bring those early disciples, you know, wealth and power and, and prestige. Oh, really? In reality, they knew from day one that would not happen because they saw what happened to Jesus and they saw what happened to anybody that followed him from his crucifixion on. Peter would be crucified upside down at his own request. James would be stoned to death. And all the apostles but John would die a martyr's death, whether by the sword or a spear or a crucifixion, including Paul. When you put those things together, the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, and the changed lives of the people who saw Jesus, you have a very powerful case for what really happened. So what really happened? Jesus rose from the dead. That's what really happened. And by way of application, I'd, I'd encourage you as believers to read more today, this week. Read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 and be assured to stand in it. Here Paul gives the, the sad implications if believers are not raised. His logic is easy, easy to follow. If believers are not raised, then Christ himself was not raised. The effect back to the cause. His point is, Jesus' resurrection is not the great exception for believers, but it's the great assurance of every believer. There are few things as powerfully assuring as eternal life in order to come overcome the challenges in this life. And if you've not crossed the threshold of faith yet, I'd encourage you to, to look at all the evidence here. Uh, again, read, I'd ask you to read 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter. Look at the evidence, the death, the burial, the empty tombs, tomb, the sighting and the reuniting. 
all the changed lives. So for you, read the chapter, read 1 Corinthians in order to believe it and then stand in it. Nobody was the same after they believed in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our prayers of church, TCBC prays for you to stand in the gospel in the 21st century, just as we read about those who stood at it in the first century. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, your word is true. Uh, your word prophesied the coming of your son. Uh, your word prophesied that he would come to restore us to you. That uh, he would take uh, your wrath, that he would take uh, the guilt uh, for us in our behalf, that we might answer your call to be your family, your family for eternity. So, Father, I'd ask that uh, today, the rest of this week, that as believers, that we're encouraged, that we're assured, that we stand on it uh, even more joyfully, even more powerfully. And, Father, for those who are considering putting their faith in Christ, uh, I pray that your word and that your spirit, uh, the people around them, that these uh, eyewitness accounts would all point to the validity of your son. Uh, being crucified, uh, dying, being resurrected on behalf of all who would choose him, all who would come to faith. And we ask it in his mighty, powerful, risen name. Amen.